Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is tech journalist and social media expert, Lance Ulanoff. Lance, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. For the listeners, I'll give you an introduction. You are a technology journalist, on-air expert, consultant, and influencer. You have been a senior editor at Online Windows Magazine, editor-in-chief of PC Magazine, and chief correspondent and editor-in-chief at Mashable in the past. Currently, you're a freelance journalist and contributor to Medium.com, and you've appeared on virtually every network and numerous popular morning shows, including Live with Kelly and Ryan, The Today Show, and Good Morning America. I want to ask you about that in the second half of the show, but in the first half of the show, I want to ask you about how you got started in the tech journalism business. How did that all get going after your BA? Uh, you, you know, it was a very interesting time because it was the uh, the late 80s, mid to late 80s, and uh, the dawn of the personal, personal computing world. So uh, computers were starting to appear here and there, and they were even starting to appear in the newsroom in, in little bits and pieces. Uh, I always had an interest, but I was you know trained as purely as journalist, not as computer scientist, no background in that. Um, but I was always kind of interested. And, you know, we had a Commodore in my house, and uh, we, you know, we had uh, – uh, I'd, I'd seen some computing, really like nascent computing layout systems in college, and uh, very early on at an internship, uh, they brought in a Mac and uh, laser writer printer and page maker, and I was kind of like, oh, it's all interesting. So I was kind of self-taught, um, but I worked, you know, pure play journalism, uh, trade magazines, and all that. But in 1991, uh, I applied uh, Ziv Davis PC Magazine, and. Um, Initially, initially I got rejected, uh, and it wasn't that I wasn't qualified. But what happened is uh, the job I walked in for wasn't available by the time I interviewed. So some sort of snafu. But they kept me on file and they brought me back, and um, I kind of got in more or less on the ground floor there. Uh, if you want to describe a boot camp for tech journalists, that was PC Mag in the early '90s. Uh, it was intense. It was difficult. We were putting out uh, 400 plus page magazines every two every weeks. Every two weeks. I remember that. I was a subscriber. Yeah, it, was, um, it was honestly overwhelming. I wrote about this um, on LinkedIn uh, because the feeling of being a complete idiot was so overwhelming <laughs> at that time. I, I just, you know, Michael Miller, uh, I'm not sure how many are familiar with him, but he was I the editor-in-chief at the time. He started yeah. there about four months before I came in. He'd been at Information Week. He was, you know, he was a, brilliant. You know, I always say that two people I've met in my lifetime who I consider, you know, among the most brilliant uh, would be Michael Miller and Bill Gates, you know, with this tremendous bandwidth for information. Um and it was really overwhelming and scary, and uh, I felt like I was thrown in at the deep end. But I just kind of stuck at it, and I found that I was really interested in sort of the nitty-gritty uh, details of PC computing, even though I'd spent the previous years mostly in the Mac world. Uh, and uh, so that was a challenge in and of itself. But in any case, those years were tremendously important uh, for my career because uh, by the end of five years, I, you know, I'd left there. I was a senior associate editor and I was managing major features and I'd managed, you know, lab testing. And I really understood it so, so deeply. Um, it become part of my core. It's kind of like, you know, chiclets, they imprint on whatever they're with. And, you know, I was such a young journalist. I imprinted with technology. And it was from that point forward, it was clear that was 
that was going to be the trajectory of my career. I was always going to be in the tech journalism space, whatever way that was going to happen. But that was that was really how I got started in it. Did you foresee that when you were getting your bachelor's in journalism or were you just no. sort of big no. at that point? <laughs> no. In fact, I really, you know, I so I've been um, I, I'm actually one of the things I do now is I'm a digital professional in residence at the, the university I graduated from. So I, I work with uh, students who are entering the, the this this the journalism workforce. And I talked to them about how I thought at the time when I was their age that, oh, I'll go work at the New York Times. I'm going to be that's you know, doesn't that what every journalist does? They go work at the New York Times. Uh or even the daily – I just thought I'd be on a daily newspaper and just like wearing the silly hat with the press on it and typing at my keyboard, clack, clack, clack. Yeah, I had this romanticized vision of what it was going to be. Very quickly, once you get out of school, you realize it's different from that. And it was – not that it was a slog, but it was – the path was windy. It didn't make any sense, and I kind of had to be opportunistic and and learn whatever I could wherever I could. Just be very open to learning things from unusual places. And uh, so it kind of primed me for the moment when I did enter the tech journalism space. But I will be honest that I didn't know that existed. I did not understand that there were areas of journalism, aviation journalism, manufacturing journalism, trade journalism. Like, I didn't know that there were all these different kinds of journalism. I just thought, you know, tell news stories. That's it. That's not really the case. Later, you became the editor-in-chief of PC Magazine, and you were there for 11 years. That's incredible. How did you yes. manage to pull that off? <laughs> Well, you know, so they really – they always say that sometimes you have to leave someplace to really move up. Yeah. Uh, I left PC Mag after five years, uh, and it was, that was in 1996. So you know what time in our universe that was. That was the exploding internet, you know, the World Wide Web really happening. Absolutely. All and, and Apple's so, terrible troubles. Yeah, and I – you know – because I was at PC Mag, I wasn't really in touch with Apple's troubles. I wasn't really focused on that. We covered them, but not heavily because they were such a small part of the market, especially at that time. And so – but what I saw happening was this rise of the internet. I worked on a story at PC Mag called How to Build Your Own Website. Um, it was one of the first of its kind. And I, lo- I taught myself HTML, and I, I, re- I was like, oh, my mm. God. I, I realized – how this was going to change everything. And I knew deep, deep inside I had to be a part of it somehow. Um, so I kind of went in search of a job that would put me close to it and found uh, uh, I went to work for a magazine called Home PC Magazine, which no longer exists anymore. It was with a company called CMP. And I was the online editor. I was the entire online department, just me. I did everything. Uh, and again, it was just, you know, thrown into the deep end, you know, whatever. I had the skills I taught myself. I had to ter- learn everything else. Uh, and, you know, when they sold that magazine, that's when I went to Windows Magazine. And again, now I said part of it, I was leading up a small team. But again, it was all still the early days of building traffic, SEO, all of this stuff that you had to learn. Um and after I, you know, again, they shut down the magazine, kept online for a little while. And then um, I worked for a year, just I'd say a year, maybe in change or something like that. It, uh, it wasn't journalism. It was, a, it was a place called Deja. But what I learned there was about development and uh, linking uh, content to products and so – and community, deeply community. And um, so when – 
happens if Davis was looking for somebody to help them relaunch all their websites and somebody who understood how to build community, they came to me and I got hired as a senior um, editor and also a communi- uh, community community strategist. Uh, and I basically spent the next 11 years, you know, working, sort of working my way up, but also doing something, you know, the, the deeper I got in with PC Mag. Because I was hired sort of more broadly with Ziv Davis, but the more deeply I get uh, integrated with PC Mag, the more I was sort of spearheading the transition from print to digital. I wanted to ask you about that because you lived through that. Yeah, I was. Well, I you're talking to the person who shut down PC Mag Print. That was me. Um, what year was that? I remember that, but I don't remember when. It was 2009, um, and you know, it, the, a the decade company, ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah. The company went through some really difficult times. You know, it was when I joined in 2000, it was a big company, um, not as big as it had been because, you know, there's a whole side story here, which would take too long to tell. But, you know, Ziff Davis sold its Internet business to its rival, to CNET. And so we re- literally rebuilt the Internet, their, their Internet business from the ground up there. But PC Mag was still producing as print, but you know a lot of print magazines were struggling. They kept trying to change like who they were going to be. By the time I get, became editor in chief, I'd been working closely. Uh, I'd been running the whole reviews department, and what I had done is I had slowly shifted so that reviews were going online first. And when I became editor in chief, I continued that process for two years of shifting the whole process so everybody that had been working to deliver stuff to print first were working to deliver content directly online and then we I would had a smaller and smaller team that were devoted to print until I till when we shut down print and just did Zinio, I had a tiny little team doing that and I laid off literally one person in the process of shutting down print. And then, you know, we went to uh, you know and we survived. I mean, they survived and, uh, you know, kept going you know, until I felt like I had done everything I could do there. When PC Magazine was in its prime and you were publishing 800 plus pages a month and you were editor in chief, was that a living wage? Could one live uh, well, and to, buy to be, a house and drive buy a car <laughs> and you know, pay the bills? <laughs> well, to be clear, so in the early 90s, I was I left as a senior editor, and when I came back in 2000, we were no longer doing – even though we were still doing twice a month, we were no longer doing magazines that thick. They were much thinner. In fact, they finally got so thin that they switched to doing monthly, mm-hmm. uh, that span that was there. So it, it – you know the economics were changing so rapidly in that decade, uh, and Ziff Davis went through. You know, they literally went bankrupt. You know, and went through protection and all that. But we continued to publish, and it was a very trying time. Uh, and it was all. You know, it was a lot of. It was some of it was mismanagement on the part of the corporation, you know, overreaching, and you had a lot of really talented people who just kept their heads down and kept doing the work um, in order to survive. And I'm glad to see. You know, Ziff Davis now is is once again a thriving business. You had a chance to work with John Dvorak, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I think about John a lot. Um, is he as crusty as he seems to come across in print? You know, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't want to tell you too much about John because I think he kind of likes to keep it a little secret. I mean, look. You've got to help me get him I, on the show. That's what I, I worked. <laughs> I, I worked closely with him He's, uh, uh, for a number of years. Um, I was in – I always tell him the story of how my first go around at Ziff Davis, I I met him not as a human but as a cardboard cutout because I went to the McGraw Hill bookstore 
And this is before I even worked at Ziff. I remember I was at McGraw-Hill working on a trade pub, and I went downstairs to the bookstore, and there's a standee of John Dvorak, full size, holding his books. And I was like, oh, this is a guy. This guy, wow. So when I went to, to work at PC Mag, and he was the columnist, now I'd read through his stuff, and every once in a while I'd catch a glimpse of him in the office, but he was very rarely there because he's on the West Coast. I'd be like, oh. And then um, I met him like very briefly at an award ceremony. But when I came back, and then I became editor-in-chief, we started working really close together, and I had weekly phone calls with him, and I'd go out to the West Coast, and we'd have lunches and stuff. And, you know, he's he's a persona online, um, and, and you know, when he's writing his columns, but mm-hmm. they're, he's pretty calculated. He's very smart. Um, he's a good guy. Uh, I, I always enjoyed talking to him. Um, you know, the thing I got from, from John really was because when I joined Ziff, I wasn't really in the habit of writing columns. Uh, the second time, I, you know, I'd written a lot of stories and uh, different kinds of stories, but a weekly column had not really been something I thought I was going to do. But I kind of fell into it when I joined Ziff again. And then I started, you know, once I became an editor, I had to really do it. I was featured in the magazine. Then I was writing the editor's note at the beginning. And I had a lot of conversations with John about how to do that, about what is the process of writing a weekly column and how do you do it and how you manage it week to week and what are your perspectives. And those are really great conversations. Um, and uh, I know he just – I just tweeted at him because he just celebrated a birthday. So I was just like teasing him a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, he's uh, – to me, he's kind of a legend. He really understood the business. He really understood how to do it. I don't know how deeply integrated it is these days, but um, he played it, uh, to me, he played a very important role. Cool. Well, we've come to the end of the first half of the show. Uh, in the second half of the show, I want to ask you about some of the articles that you've written lately. You've written some really interesting articles that I've read, and I want to ask you about them. But first, it's time for a short commercial break. Folks, we'll be right back. I'm chatting with Lance Olinoff. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thank you, Kelly. We're back. I'm chatting with Lance Olenoff. So I have a whole bunch of interesting technical questions I want to ask you. Is, is, is it my perception correct that you've kind of steered more towards Apple lately? Um, not, you know, it's funny. I think about that. Sometimes it, it comes in clumps. Um, it, and I think it's a reflection of sort of, 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 of what's happening outside is that there's a tremendous amount of interest in what Apple is doing, um, and you know, just the, the the scale and scope of their business, you know, it touches so many people. Uh, you know, people who either work for them or make money indirectly through them. People who carry their products or use their apps, businesses that integrate. It's they have an outsized influence, it seems, and so. Uh, 
I've ended up writing about them because I'll maybe I'll be thinking about them. You know, my whole the whole article about um, the importance of AirPods to their business was something uh, I was it's thinking on my about. List. It's on my list. I was I was thinking about it for a very long time. I just I had this. I think what happens is well, let's do people, that now. Let's do the AirPods okay. thing now. Go ahead. So, so when people say that you're an idiot for liking something, you know, they make fun <laughs> of you, right? They they say you look like an idiot, or those are ridiculous, or they won't ever work. You you can't. It kind of hooks into you, right? So there's now it's a part of your psyche, and if you feel that you're right. you're never really going to entirely walk away from that. You're going to kind of be like, kind of go back to it. And what I was doing is I was watching. I tend to do this with any product. I sort of like look around and see what's out in the wild, right? And I noticed over time, more and more people wearing AirPods. It was happening very quietly, but it was just happening. Like, you know, just random people where I was like, you know, because when I wore them initially, I would get the looks get the long looks over and over again and there were pictures of me online that made fun of me you know because it probably because i'm bald and you really can they just stick out they seem it's because people don't understand how they work and they're mystified Um, by them and they're a little jealous uh, and a little ignorant well yes and no i mean i think that i would be lying if i didn't say that yeah, they can look a little odd. It's like for some reason, when you don't have the cable coming off the end of those buds, it makes it look like you're wearing some sort of weird earring that's stuck in your ear instead of on your earlobe. Mm. I, I get that. I get that sort of like visceral reaction. But I became convinced that there was something more going on here and that 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 this was actually a really important product for because it was the first product in a while that was changing minds, that was – Getting people who had maybe said never, I'm a I'm a never AirPod person, and suddenly they're getting them and they're wearing them and they're loving them. I did, my wife just handed my wife a pair, and no exaggeration, she doesn't even remember that she looked at me the first time I was walking around with them in the house, like and gave me that look of idiot, you know, just like. And now she's wearing them. Now she's wearing them because she understands how important they are, how useful they are. They just stay, and she, no questions. And 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 she's often a great test case for me. But in any case. It just and and that and I'm I know I'm right about it. You know we've seen how it's been solidified and we've seen like with the new AirPods the outsized interest in these this little product that that uh, you know says that oh people really care about this product. They're very excited about the next version. They want to know everything about it. They're frustrated when they don't get some of the features that they hoped for. So uh, you use the word important. Uh, yeah. Do you see that as in, in terms of not just being audio and music and headphones, but a gateway into talking to your computer, a gateway into augmented reality? Well, I, certainly a gateway into talking to a computer. You know, the hands-free, um, and I want to say its name because I've got things that will start talking to me, but hands-free <laughs> assistant that you've got going, that's uh, clearly that. But it's also a it's a calling card. You, you think about – so some people do walk around holding their phone in their hand, but a lot of people have it in their pocket, in their bag, or they, you know, it's down. You don't really see it. Uh, the watch, maybe a sleeve covers it, but you know, you can kind of see these AirPods coming, and so it's it's a little bit of Apple showing on your body for everyone to see, and whether or not people are using them, they're like, huh. Interesting, and so it's a it's like a gateway drug to the iOS experience, right? It's, it's like a uh, tattoo. It's a statement. Yeah, yeah, it's a statement. But they're you know, 
and there, I've never argued with people and said that these are for audiophiles. I'm not an audiophile. I'm somebody who likes decent music, who loves podcasts, who absolutely loves the ability to wear them. And I just did this over the weekend. I'll wear them for hours while I'm doing yard work. And I used to wear my my earbuds when I was doing that. And no exaggeration, every 10 minutes, I would stand up, the wire would get caught on my leg, they would yank out of my ears painfully. <laughs> and obviously, I forget I'm wearing them, except I'm enjoying the experience of wearing the earbuds while I'm doing stuff. So uh, it's just... I, I love them for that. I don't care about whether or not the music, the audio quality is perfect. If I want that, I'll put a pair of cans on. I get it. Okay. So this fits into that kind of. Um, my next item on my list is air power. Mm-hmm. I saw a tweet from Walt Mossberg a couple of days ago. He said, you know, if Apple had canceled the iPhone in 2007 because I couldn't get it to work, that would have been a big deal. But canceling air power, you know, don't sweat it. It's just not a big product. Don't, you know, don't get excited. I think you have a different opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's because Apple, you know, Phil Schiller stood on stage and said, and coming soon, here's the air power. And it showed it. And we all like, whoa. That's good, and, and and it also was a it's it was a directional product. It was about a wireless charging future where multiple products right. would sit on. Because we got our first wireless charging product, and the others, you know, the I mean, Apple Watch, we get you know, and then the the AirPod, uh, AirPods, which weren't at the time. You know, it's funny because I didn't pay a lot of attention to that image, and I wish I had because going all the way back to 2017 when they showed that image, the AirPod sitting on that wireless charging had the the the, the dot for the LED on the case. That was already different than what we knew, and yet we didn't talk about it because no one noticed. No one really like thought much of it. Um, but in any case, Apple's not in the habit of announcing and canceling. They're really not. Yeah, really they can announce not. and they can they can slip. Um, but this was just so out of character for them. And you know, Do you have any like, insight I, into why that maybe happened? Do you think maybe they were pressured? By competition, or they were That's, lacking on a big show item for that presentation, and they needed to outguess the guessers on what was going to be presented. Do you have any theories or, or facts for that matter? I mean, I you know, no fact. They've told us, you know, I've been told literally nothing. Um, I you know that they couldn't get. It's strange because Apple, so. Apple tends to work with third-party partners to get bespoke components that work the way they want them to. Um, and they'll, they'll have their own programming in there, but they'll work closely with the, the silicon guys, and they'll get it all working. And so this is a far less complicated piece of equipment. You know, it's a series. It's a, a series of coils that are hidden inside this thing that allow you to put your stuff wherever you want it and, and charge mm-hmm. up. So the the issues that I could imagine seem to me would be very fundamental. Like they couldn't get the like drop it anywhere and, and have the experience of getting charged because that's the one thing I've noticed on virtually every charging pad I own is that there is a couple of millimeters of difference sometimes between getting the charge and, got, and not getting the charge. And I've had that happen where I put something on and thought I was charging and then realized I had not put it in the right spot. So I could imagine that. Or I could imagine. So if you have more relaxed engineering standards, you can ship a product. But if you're fussy. Right. If you're fussy and Apple's certainly fussy. And, you know, but here's the other thing to cancel as opposed to delay is a 
seems strange to me. Like, yeah, why, yeah. why not just go? You know what? We, we all, you know, want to be honest with you guys here. We we, we found some ch- engineering challenges, but we're still committed to this product. We're going, and so you're going to see it uh, summer 2019. But instead, they said it, it, we've canceled this product. We're going to still do wireless charging. Obviously, you've got a bunch of wirelessly charging products, uh, but they didn't give us a go forward. Like it was just sort of like. It, it, it was, you know, a ritual beheading or something. It was just strange, and and I, and we're left with this: the death of this product we never knew. Um, Apple doing something very unApple-like, uh, and uh, you know, it just me. It introduces an uncertainty that has never existed in Apple's universe before, or not since you know, like before two thousand, where. Apple showing us something early and us going, well, that might or might not show up. You know, uh, you know, we don't know. Maybe they're maybe they're going to change their minds, or they're not going to be able to do it. Um, Apple's never been held back by engineering challenges before. That's just simply not. And even when they've when they've had issues where they've you know a phone that was maybe too bendable or something like that or an attenuation, they fixed it. Right, right, they fixed it. So. It's, I I was stumped and I was shocked and I, and it is and I didn't mean it in a derisive way. I'm not trying to like slam Apple and say we no longer trust you, but it is a question of a tiny bit of trust that you know something will happen has been chipped away because there is now the X factor of sometimes something will not happen for an unnamed reason. Well, I see that with the Macintosh. You know, we had the long delay. Uh, to the Mac Pro from 2013 to 2019. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, we yeah, had the do. iMac that just came out that was nine months late. The Coffee Lake MacBook Pros came out in July of 18, but the Coffee Lake iMacs didn't come out until March. A couple of them had Coffee Lake um, Plus, but most of them still had the Coffee Lake processor. That yeah. was weird. You, you sort of get the feeling that they're starved for engineering resources, as we discussed with AirPower. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think they can if they don't have the resources they need, they can often buy a small company that fits that fills a gap where they see an opportunity. You know, they've done that with, for example, like three D imaging. You know, when they brought PrimeSense, and you know, it's really about you know uh, they have a long term vision and they realize they don't have the expertise in house and and they. The timeline might not work to just build it out, but they see somebody actually has something that looks great, and they probably can take that as a jump-off point. And so that's what they normally do. They wouldn't be stymied by it. That's why I kind of halfway jokingly said with the air power, they could just go ahead and buy Belkin, you know, and 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 you know, and then not worry because they'll be making all sorts of accessories, um, which is, by the way, a good business, especially if you're starting to focus your business more on services. So then you want people to just upgrade what they have, the products they have, but instead of buying brand new products they just add accessories to them and along with all the money you're pulling in from services yeah yeah okay next item on my list so we recently wrote an article about apple news plus apple news plus is darn near too much of a good thing i edited that line a little bit Um, (laughs) so you're you're pretty familiar with publishing and you made some interesting comments in that article about apple news plus uh, I wanted to ask you, the, the revenue doesn't seem like the big thing. It seems like subscriber views and circulation is the driver here. Did, did I read that right? 
Well, so those things are tied together. So if you have a certain rate base, a certain circulation, you can charge a certain amount for your ads. Mm -hmm. So you always want your circulation to go up so you can charge a better rate base for your ads. And that's – so now Apple and the – I think it's AAM have worked out a way of counting these micro-subscriptions to the rate base, meaning that – Opening an issue of a single magazine will count as a little kind of circulation bump, and they can aggregate those. But it's not continual. It's not uh, – so the whole great thing about circulation, about subscriptions is annuities, meaning that you know every year they're going to be subscribing again because oftentimes they don't know how to unsubscribe. So it's like the best business in the world is subscription-based businesses, which, by the way, is what Apple's in now. That's what they do with iCloud. That's what they're going to do with all the other businesses. You know, mm -hmm. once you're once you signed up, you don't often unsign up. You just – you don't get out of it. And we used to – in the old circuit game, we used to make it hard for them to do that. I, w I didn't run circulation, but I know that's Is that the kind of happening. company that needs to make it hard to unsubscribe? Is that no. a business model for Apple? No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. But for the magazines, well, they don't even have that choice now. So basically, I think that Apple will do pretty well with having people just sign up for this thing because once they've signed up for News Plus, it's still – it takes an effort to unsubscribe because you have to go find it. Uh, but it's a question of – for me – uh, because there's no question about the quality of content. There's a lot of great content. Some of it looks really good. Some of it looks just okay. Uh, but you could just, you know, just spend some time today again reading another article. I was in the, the New Yorker. You know, it's like just happiness. Um, but uh, you know, the, the question is, can they can they make can these magazines make uh, a thriving economic model for them out of this? I don't know. What kind of cut, leaving aside circulation slash ads, I don't know what kind of cut Apple is giving to the magazines for being broadly part of this. I don't imagine it's a lot because it's nine ninety nine a month. Right, or, 300 magazines. Or, yeah, so all these magazines. So uh, it's got to be the main money they make has to be through ads. Um, they sell the ads. The ads are, are you know, a version of what runs in print for them if they have print, which most of them do. Uh, and then it's a question of because if the circulation through Apple through Apple News doesn't grow in some incremental way, uh, advertisers will either not be willing to pay more or will argue to pay even less, which is going to be a problem for the magazines. Now, they get 100% of the revenue if they sell the mag the ad. If Apple assists or sells it, they get like 70%. Apple gets a 30% cut. Um, but it all remains to be seen. You know, one thing that um that Do you think there's told, a built-in failure mode? I mean, most projects that are started by astute companies grow and grow and grow and grow and become really successful. Is Is there a F potential failure mode here where Apple could just throw in the towel someday, maybe? I'm just curious. Um, I, well, anybody who is part of the magazine business in some way probably has that uh, escape hatch just because the, the magazine business is so, so difficult. All these publications that exist in here, any of them that have a print component are basically wearing a millstone around their neck uh, because that part of the business is a disaster no matter what. 
there's a very there's just a handful of magazines that make real money that way. All of the others are just struggling. So you have a business like Hudson News that was based on a, a vast proliferation of magazines. And Hudson News has continually shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And then they've sold space within their stores to Dunkin' Donuts and Pizza Hut and other places because they can't support it through the magazines anymore. So that was their escape hatch, right? So – you know, at least for Apple, it's digital space. So if the if suddenly the magazine number goes down to uh, two hundred or one hundred in the future, uh, do they charge less? Maybe. Um, or the other alternative, which is what I talked about, is that the magazines say, "Yeah, we want to be a part of this, but we're we're struggling, so we're going to pull out." And Apple says, "No, no, no, we'll figure this out. We're going to make we're going to charge more, so you guys will get a bigger cut." Um, that's also a possibility, you know. And I, I hate to be so cynical about this, but when you spend so much time in the publishing industry and you've seen, you know, how the economics are so screwed up, I don't know if Apple has the solution here. We'll that's, have to that's see. That's a fascinating concept because Apple typically hasn't annually incre- incremented their prices. Like Apple Music is still the same ten dollars a month it was years ago. And yeah. uh, Apple's not historically known to be one of those people who raises rates every year on their services. I know, so, I know. So your your comment about fourteen ninety five a month or maybe twenty five dollars a month is kind of scary. It is, it is, and it's it's the worst case scenario. But I I I just think it remains to be seen. You know, I I have this feeling of oh no, this is too much of a good thing for too little. You know, I just yeah. feel like it's, it's somebody's not making, you know, because magazines are desperate for eyeballs. So they'll agree to do this and hope for long term success. But I guarantee you right now up front, this is not a success for them. You know, this is another potential way of solving a very difficult long term problem. And I think it helps Apple in the sense that Apple never get, enters into an agreement or a services with third party without Apple coming out as a winner. And it yeah. also helps Apple's reputation as being the curator of good news and, and, and quality content, which yeah. is what they're driving at with Apple TV Plus, too, is this in addition. So it really helps Apple quite a bit. And as you said, it's going to be interesting to see if the publishers really embrace it and really make money. Yeah, that'll be the big question. Well, speaking of Apple TV Plus, see how I did that? Hmm. Um, you had some interesting comments to make recently in an article about that, um, especially in terms of Apple addressing the content uh, in comparison to the other services in terms of drama and sex and violence and being on equal terms with the other services and people people you said like to have options. I want to explore that with you for a minute or two. Um, why do you feel that way? And that seems to go in contrast to Apple's stated purpose of family entertainment. Well, I mean, when people, I mean, certainly there's a place for family entertainment. And, and I think that uh, everybody you know, likes to be able to have their kids watch the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon. And there are certainly shows that we like to sit down and watch together. But when people are paying, people are paying real money uh, for a, a channel or a service they don't like to be told what they can and can't watch. So they'll, they, they understand that there can be parental controls and there can be certain areas that are designated, but they don't want everything to feel like, uh, like it's like they've got handcuffs on, right? So mm. they're, 
you know, you'll watch something and you'll you'll you realize that you know, people in the normal course of an argument or in their lives, they you know may you know have something you know they may curse or you know there's something sexual that happens and and it's in the context of a story and you can feel that and you're and you you get the sense that there's a realness to it and you enjoy it because of that and if all of apple's content feels like it's a step removed from reality like it has no no hooks into the the real experience of life People are going to notice that they're not going to have that visceral reaction to it, you know, or, or 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 it's not going to push a button hard enough. The early, you know, when House of Cards premiered on on Netflix, I think what what people were stunned about is the way it was sort of like pushing buttons, you know, it was just sort of it didn't pull back, it didn't wasn't afraid. It was slightly exaggerated, but it had it had all of these elements, and you you could see that they. They weren't thinking about, oh, how do we be careful about the standards and practices? They were like, how do we tell a really good story here? How do we tell it? I was reading a book about uh, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, the story of the making of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And one of the things that stood out to me was a comment that Kubrick made. In every scene of every movie, he had three goals. Is it interesting? Is it believable? And is it aesthetically beautiful? Those were his three standards for his movies. Yeah, I and mean that's a, that covers like, it. Uh, sounds like you're right on track with Stanley. Yeah, it, it covers it, and it, I, 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 you know, I'm certain that there's some stuff that Apple's going to have there that people will be like, "Oh, that's pretty good. That's good. That's interesting. Or that's funny. Or I enjoyed that." Um, and that'll be good. But to win in this game. You have to have something on your network, on your platform that, that everybody's talking about, that people are talking about and other people are going, what are you talking about? And mm-hmm. then finally they get to that point of going, oh, I need to see that. And then they're like – and then that moment of going, oh, I don't have that. You know, I don't have Netflix. I don't have Hulu. I don't have TV+. And if they have the FOMO, right, if they have the fear of missing out to point of they're not part of a cultural conversation – they will get it, even if they get it for a short period of time. And, you know, what Netflix did is it used House of Cards as kind of a model for other shows. And HBO, by the way, does the exact same thing, right? You know, what's going to happen when Game of Thrones goes away? What's going to replace it? Because prior to that, what was it? The Wire. And prior to that, it was The Sopranos. And like, so mm-hmm. they've always had that sense of having the thing. And I've watched. Series. Right, and I've watched these shows, and these shows don't pull any punches. And sometimes when you watch them, they're like, "Oh, that's too much." But if 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 Apple comes off as sort of priggish, or, or not priggish, or uh, prudish, um, and 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 Pollyannish about the world, and artificial, and artificial, it's not going to win. And you know, the the thing about sitting in the Apple Services event, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, that struck me during the the rollout of the the TV Plus and one star after another is that everybody was in this mode of this is more than just TV. This is more than just storytelling. We're I swear I thought they were going to say we're going to save the world. They and did. I'm they like, did stories that change the world. They did. I have and a I, screenshot. And, <laughs> and I'm like, that's I, I I get it. I get it. You know, I've written stories, I've read stories, I'm inspired, I'm excited about them, but I felt like it was an oversell. You have shown us nothing. We have not seen a single one of your shows. So just bringing out Oprah 
and letting her just you know, bask in, in the glow of this and tell us she's got a couple of documentaries and, you know, that's not enough. Oprah doesn't make you important. What makes you important is the actual content. Show us the content. Let's see it. Let's see some of your shows and let us decide for ourselves. I think that now Apple has put itself into a position of if they don't have these shows that have this massive impact, they'll look ridiculous. I mean, they already in a way looked ridiculous because they did uh, – what was it? App. What was that app show that they had? Uh, Revenge of the Apps or something like that? Uh, I forget. I never watched yeah. it. Yeah, no, I never watched it either. And, you know, it was, it was not a good start. And so, you know, so don't Planet talk. of the Apps. Planet of the Apps, yeah. Not not good. And and really what they need to do is deliver and then uh, the, the content will speak for itself. And people will be talking about it and they'll, they'll be telling other people, no, no, you really have to see this. You have to hear what they're saying. You have to see what they've done here. This is exciting. Uh, this is something I haven't seen before. Um, if it's just like a, 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 you know, basically a pay-per-view of sitcoms, uh, that's not going to do it. Well, you've made a compelling point. You've almost convinced me. I <laughs> Um, Apple made a strong case for quality entertainment that was viewable by the family, and you've made an equal and a strong argument uh, in the last couple minutes, and I think that's a really good point. So, uh, with that, we are out of time. I want to thank you for joining me on the show and sharing your thoughts. Oh, well, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for letting me talk so much. I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Tell the listeners how to contact you if they wish. Uh, easy to find me virtually anywhere by my full name, Lance Yulinoff. And you also, Twitter is probably the place I spend most of my time. So feel free to drop me a line there. And if you, you know, you probably could just slide right into my DMs. That's okay too. All right. Great. Listeners, I'm really glad you came by and I hope you enjoyed the show with Lance. Thank you for coming by and we'll be seeing you next week on the Mac Observer's Background Mode.